be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Good evening. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 5 to 8 of Anna Karenina, part 1, by Leo Tolstoy. So let your eyes fall heavy, and your breath soften, as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 5 Stepan Arkadyevich had learned easily at school, thanks to his excellent abilities, but he had been idle and mischievous, and therefore was one of the lowest in his class. But in spite of his habitually dissipated mode of life, his inferior grade in the service, and his comparative youth, He occupied the honourable and lucrative position of president of one of the government boards at Moscow. This post he had received through his sister Anna's husband, Alexei Alexandrovich Karenin, who held one of the most important positions in the ministry to whose department the Moscow office belonged. But if Karenin had not got his brother-in-law this birth, then through a hundred other personages, brothers, sisters, cousins, uncles and aunts, Steva Oblonsky would have received this post, or some other similar one, together with the salary of six thousand absolutely needful for him, as his affairs in spite of his wife's considerable property, were in an embarrassed condition. Half of Moscow and Petersburg were friends and relations of Stepan Arkadyevich. He was born in the midst of those who had been and are the powerful ones in this world. One third of the men in the government, the older men, had been friends of his father's, and had known him in petticoats. Another third were his inmate chums, and the remainder were friendly acquaintances. Consequently, the distributors of earthly blessings in the shape of places, rents, shares and such were all his friends, and could not overlook one of their own set and Oblonsky had no need to make any special excursion to get a lucrative post. He had only not to refuse things, not to show jealousy, not to be quarrelsome or take offence, all of which from his characteristic good nature he never did. It would have struck him as absurd if he had been told that he would not get a position with the salary he required, especially as he expected nothing out of the way. He only wanted what the men of his own age and standing did get, 
and he was no worse qualified for performing duties of the kind than any other man. Stepan Arkadyevich was not merely liked by all who knew him for his good humour, but for his bright disposition and his questionable honesty. In him, in his handsome, radiant figure, his sparkling eyes, black hair and eyebrows, and the white and red of his face, there was something which produced a physical effect of kindliness and good humour on the people who met him. Aha, Steva, Oblonsky, here he is, was almost always said with a smile of delight on meeting him. Even though it happened at times that after a conversation with him, it seemed that nothing particularly delightful had happened. The next day, and the next, everyone was just as delighted at meeting him again. After filling for three years the post of president of one of the government boards at Moscow, Stepan Arkadyevich had won the respect, as well as the liking, of his fellow officials, subordinates, and superiors, and all who had been in business with him. The principal qualities in Stepan Arkadyevich, which had gained him this universal respect in the service, consisted, in the first place, of his extreme indulgence for others, founded on a consciousness of his own shortcomings. Secondly, of his perfect liberalism, not the liberalism he read off in the papers, but the liberalism that was in his blood, in virtue of which he treated all men perfectly equally and exactly the same, whatever their fortune or calling might be. And thirdly, the most important point, his complete indifference to the business in which he was engaged, in consequence of which he was never carried away and never made mistakes. On reaching the offices of the board, Stepan Arkadyevich, escorted by a deferential porter with a portfolio, went into his little private room, put on his uniform, and went into the boardroom. The clerks and copyists all rose, greeting him with good-humoured deference. Stepan Arkadyevich moved quickly, as ever, to his place, shook hands with his colleagues, and sat down. He made a joke or two, and talked just as much as was consistent with due decorum, and began work. No one knew better than Stepan Arkadyevich how to hit on the exact line between freedom, simplicity, and official stiffness necessary for the agreeable conduct of business. A secretary, with a good-humoured deference common to everyone in Stepan Arkadyevich's office, came up with papers and began to speak in the familiar and easy tone which had been introduced by Stepan Arkadyevich. 
we have succeeded in getting the information from the government department of Penza. Here, would you care? You've got them at last, said Stepan Arkadyevich, laying his finger on the paper. Now, gentlemen. And the sitting of the board began. If they knew, he thought, bending his head with a significant air as he listened to the report. What a guilty little boy their president was half an hour ago, and his eyes were laughing during the reading of the report. Till two o'clock the sitting would go on without a break, and at two o'clock there would be an interval and luncheon. It was not yet two, when the large glass door of the boardroom suddenly opened and someone came in. All the officials sitting on the further side under the portrait of the Tsar and the Eagle, delighted at any distraction, looked round at the door. But the doorkeeper standing at the door at once drove out the intruder and closed the glass door after him. When the case had been read through, Stepan Arkadyevich got up and stretched, and by way of tribute to the liberalism of the times, took out a cigarette in the boardroom and went into his private room. Two of the members of the board, the old veteran in the service, Nikitin, and the camera junker, Grinevich, went in with him. We shall have time to finish after lunch, said Stepan Arkadyevich. To be sure we shall, said Nikitin. A pretty sharp fellow this foreman must be, said Grinevich, of one of the persons taking part in the case they were examining. Stepan Arkadyevich frowned at Grinevich's words giving him thereby to understand that it was improper to pass judgment prematurely, and made him no reply. Who was that came in? he asked the doorkeeper. Someone, your excellency, crept in without permission, directly as my back was turned. He was asking for you. I told him, when the members come out, then... Where is he? Maybe he's gone into the passage, but here he comes anyway. That is he, said the doorkeeper, pointing to a strongly built, broad-shouldered man with a curly beard, who, without taking off his sheepskin cap, was running lightly and rapidly up the worn steps of the stone staircase. One of the members going down, a lean official with a portfolio, stood out of his way and looked disapprovingly at the legs of the stranger, then glanced inquiringly at Oblonsky. Stepan Arkadyevich was standing at the top of the stairs, his good-naturedly beaming face above the embroidered collar of his uniform beamed more than ever when he recognised the man coming up. Why, it's actually you, Levin at last, he said with a friendly, 
mocking smile, scanning Levin as he approached. How is it you have deigned to look me up in this den? said Stepan Arkadyevich, and not content with shaking hands, he kissed his friend. Have you been here long? I have just come, and very much wanted to see you, said Levin, looking shyly and at the same time angrily and uneasily around. Well, let's go into my room, said Stepan Arkadyevich, who knew his friend's sensitive and irritable shyness, and, taking his arm, he drew him along, as though guiding him through dangers. Stepan Arkadyevich was on familiar terms with almost all his acquaintances, and called almost all of them by their Christian names. Old men of sixty, boys of twenty, actors, ministers, merchants, and adjutant generals, so that many of his inmate chums were to be found at the extreme ends of the social ladder, and would have been very much surprised to learn that they had, through the medium of Vablonsky, something in common. He was the familiar friend of everyone with whom he took a glass of champagne and he took a glass of champagne with everyone, and when in consequence he met any of his disreputable chums, as he used in joke to call many of his friends, in the presence of his subordinates, he well knew how, with his characteristic tact, to diminish the disagreeable impression made upon them. Levin was not a disreputable chum, but Oblonsky, with his ready tact, felt that Levin fancied he might not care to show his intimacy with him before his subordinates, and so he made haste to take him off into his room. Levin was almost of the same age as Oblonsky. Their intimacy did not rest merely on champagne. Levin had been the friend and companion of his early youth. They were fond of one another, in spite of the difference of their characters and tastes, as friends are fond of one another who have been together in early youth. But in spite of this, each of them, as is often the way with men who have selected careers of different kinds, though in discussion, he would even justify the other's career, in his heart despised it. It seemed to each of them that the life he led himself was the only real life, and the life led by his friend was a mere phantasm. Abronsky could not restrain a slight mocking smile at the sight of Levin. How often he had seen him come up to Moscow from the country where he was doing something, but what precisely Stepan Arkadyevich could never quite make out, and indeed he took no interest in the matter. Levin arrived in Moscow always excited and in a hurry, rather ill at ease and irritated by his own want of ease, 
and for the most part with a perfectly new, unexpected view of things. Stepan Arkadyevitch laughed at this and liked it. In the same way Levin, in his heart, despised the town mode of life of his friend and his official duties, which he laughed at and regarded as trifling. But the difference was that Oblonsky, as he was doing the same as everyone did, laughed complacently and good-humouredly, while Levin laughed without complacency and sometimes angrily. We have long been expecting you, said Stepan Arkadyevitch, going into his room and letting Levin's hand go, as though to show that here all danger was over. I am very, very glad to see you, he went on. Well, how are you, eh? When did you come? Levin was silent looking at the unknown faces of Oblonsky's two companions, and especially at the hand of the elegant Grinevich, which had such long, white fingers, such long, yellow, filbert-shaped nails, and such huge, shining studs on the shirt cuff, that apparently they absorbed all his attention, and allowed him no freedom of thought. Oblonsky noticed this at once and smiled. Ah, to be sure, let me introduce you, he said. My colleagues, Philip Ivanich Nikitin, Mihail Stanislavich Grinevich, and turned to Levin. A district councillor, a modern district councilman, a gymnast who lifts thirteen stone with one hand, a cattle breeder and sportsman, and my friend, Konstantin Dimremvich Levin, the brother of Sergei Ivanovich Koznyshev. Delighted, the veteran said. I have the honour of knowing your brother, Sergei Ivanovich, said Grinevich holding out his slender hand with its long nails. Levin frowned, shook hands coldly, and at once turned to Obronsky. Though he had a great respect for his half-brother, an author well known to all Russia, he could not endure it when people treated him not as Konstantin Levin, but as the brother of the celebrated Koznyshev. No, I am no longer a district councillor. I have quarrelled with them all, and don't go to the meetings any more, he said, turning to Oblonsky. You've been quick about it, said Oblonsky with a smile. But how? Why? It's a long story. I will tell you some time, said Levin, but he began telling him at once. Well, to put it shortly, I was convinced that nothing was really done by the district councils, or ever could be, he began, as though someone had just insulted him. On one side, it's a plaything, 
they play at being a parliament, and I'm either young enough nor old enough to find amusement in playthings, and on the other side, he stammered, it's a means for the courtier of the district to make money. Formerly they had wardships, courts of justice, now they have the district council, not in the form of bribes, but in the form of unearned salary, he said, as hotly as though someone of those present had opposed his opinion. Aha, you're in a new phase again. I see, a conservative, said Stepan Arkadyevich. However, we can go into that later. Yes, later, but I wanted to see, said Levin, looking with hatred at Grinevich's hand. Stepan Arkadyevich gave a scarcely perceptible smile. How was it you used to say you would never wear European dress again, he said, scanning his new suit, obviously cut by a French tailor. Ah, I see, a new phase. Levin suddenly blushed, not as grown men blush, slightly, without being themselves aware of it, but as boys blush feeling that they are ridiculous through their shyness, and consequently ashamed of it and blushing still more, almost to the point of tears. And it was so strange to see this sensible, manly face in such a childish plight that Oblonsky left off looking at him. Oh, where shall we meet? You know I want very much to talk to you said Levin. Oblonsky seemed to ponder. I'll tell you what, let's go to the Gurins to lunch, and there we can talk. I am free till three. No, answered Levin, after an instant's thought. I've got to go on somewhere else. All right then, let's dine together. Dine together? But I have nothing very particular. Only a few words to say, and a question I want to ask you, and we can have a talk afterwards. Well, say the few words then, at once, and we'll gossip after dinner. Well, it's this, said Levin, but it's of no importance, though. His face all at once took an expression of anger from the effort he was making to surmount his shyness. What are the Shirtbatskys doing? Everything as is used to be, he said. Stepan Arkadyevich, who had long known that Levin was in love with his sister-in-law, Kitty, gave a hardly perceptible smile, and his eyes sparkled merrily. You said a few words, but I can't answer in a few, because, excuse me a minute, a secretary came in, with respectful familiarity and the modest consciousness, characteristic of every secretary, of superiority to his chief in the knowledge of their business. He went up to Obronsky with some papers, and began, under pretense of asking a question, to explain some objection. 
Stepan Arkadyevich, without hearing him out, laid his hand gently on the secretary's sleeve. No, you do as I told you, he said, softening his words with a smile, and with a brief explanation of his view of the matter, he turned away from the papers and said, So do it that way, if you please, Zahar Nikitich. The secretary retired in confusion. During the consultation with the secretary, Levin had completely recovered from his embarrassment. He was standing with his elbows on the back of a chair, and on his face was a look of ironical attention. I don't understand it. I don't understand it, he said. What don't you understand, said Oblonsky, smiling as brightly as ever and picking up a cigarette. He expected some queer outburst from Levin. I don't understand what you are doing, said Levin, shrugging his shoulders. How can you do it so seriously? Why not? Why, because there's nothing in it. You think so, but we're overwhelmed with work. On paper, but there, you've a gift for it, added Levin. That's to say, you think there's a lack of something in me. Perhaps so, said Levin. But all the same, I admire your grandeur, and am proud that I've a friend in such a great person. You've not answered my question, though he went on, with a desperate effort, looking Oblonsky straight in the face. Oh, that's all very well. You wait a bit, and you'll come to this yourself. It's very nice for you to have over six thousand acres in the Karenzinsky district, and such muscles, and the freshness of a girl of twelve. Still, you'll be one of us one day. Yes. As to your question, there is no change, but it's a pity you've been away so long. Oh, why so? Levin queried, panic-stricken. Oh, nothing, responded Dublinsky. We'll talk it over, but what's brought you up to town? Oh, we'll talk about that too, later on, said Levin, reddening again up to his ears. All right, I see, said Stepan Arkadyevich. I should ask you to come with us, you know, but my wife's not quite the thing. But I tell you what, if you want to see them, they're sure now to be at the zoological garden from four to five. Kitty skates. You drive along there, and I'll come to fetch you, and we'll go and dine somewhere together. Capital. So goodbye till then. Now mind, you'll forget, I know you, or rush off home to the country, Stepan Arkadyevich called out laughing. No, truly. And Levin went out of the room, only when he was in the doorway, remembering that he had forgotten to take leave of Oblonsky's colleagues. That gentleman must be a man of great energy, said Grinevich, when Levin had gone away. 
Yes, my dear boy, said Stepan Arkadyevich, nodding his head. He's a lucky fellow. Over six thousand acres in the Karazinsky district. Everything before him, and what youth and vigour. Not like some of us. You have a great deal to complain of, haven't you, Stepan Arkadyevich? Ah, yes, I'm in a poor way, a bad way, said Stepan Arkadyevich with a heavy sigh. Chapter 6 When Oblonsky asked Levin what had brought him to town, Levin blushed and was furious with himself for blushing, because he could not answer, I have come to make your sister-in-law an offer, though that was precisely what he had come for. The families of Levin and the Shabatskys were old, noble, Moscow families, and had always been on intimate and friendly terms. This intimacy had grown still closer during Levin's student days, he had both prepared for the university with the young Prince Shabatsky, the brother of Kitty and Dolly, and had entered at the same time with him. In those days, Levin used often to be in the Shabatsky's house, and he was in love with the Shabatsky household. Strange as it may appear, it was with the household, the family, that Konstantin Levin was in love, especially with the feminine half of the household. Levin did not remember his own mother, and his only sister was older than he was, so that it was in the Shabatsky's house that he saw for the first time that in a life of old, noble, cultivated and honourable families of which he had been deprived by the death of his father and mother. All the members of that family, especially the feminine half, were pictured by him, as it were, wrapped about with a mysterious poetical veil, and he not only perceived no defects whatever in them, but under the poetical veil that shrouded them, he assumed the existence of the loftiest sentiments and every possible perfection. Why it was that three young ladies had one day to speak French, and the next English. Why it was that a certain hours they played by turn on the piano, the sound of which were audible in their brother's room above, where the students used to work. Why they were visited by those professors of French literature, of music, of drawing, of dancing. Why at certain hours all the three young ladies, with Mademoiselle Linen, drove in the coach to the Trevisky Boulevard, dressed in their satin cloaks, Dolly in a long one, Natalia in a half-long one, and Kitty in one so short that her shapely legs in tightly drawn red stockings were visible to all beholders. Why it was they had to walk about the Tversky Boulevard, escorted by a footman with a gold cockade in his hat. 
all this and much more that was done in their mysterious world he did not understand. But he was sure that everything that was done there was very good, and he was in love precisely with the mystery of the proceedings. In his student days, he had all but been in love with the eldest, Dolly, but she was soon married to Oblinsky. Then he began being in love with the second. He felt, as it were, that he had to be in love with one of the sisters, only he could not quite make out which. But Natalia, too, had hardly made her appearance in the world when she married the diplomat, Lvov. Kitty was still a child when Levin left the university. Jan Shabatsky went into the navy, was drowned in the Baltic, and Levin's relations with the Shabatskys, in spite of his friendship with Oblinsky, became less intimate. But when early in the winter of this year Levin came to Moscow, after a year in the country, and saw the Shabatskys, he realized which of the three sisters he was indeed destined to love. One would have thought that nothing could be simpler than for him, a man of good family, rather rich than poor, and thirty-two years old, to make the young Princess Shabatskia an offer of marriage. In all likelihood, he would at once have been looked upon as a good match. But Levin was in love, and so it seemed to him that Kitty was so perfect in every respect that she was a creature far above everything earthly, and that he was a creature so low and so earthly that it could not even be conceived that other people and she herself could regard him as worthy of her. After spending two months in Moscow in a state of enchantment, seeing Kitty almost every day in society, into which he went so as to meet her, he abruptly decided that it could not be, and went back to the country. Levin's conviction that it could not be was founded on the idea that in the eyes of her family he was a disadvantageous and worthless match for the charming Kitty, and that Kitty herself could not love him. In her family's eyes he had no ordinary, definite career and position in society, while his contemporaries by this time, when he was thirty-two, were already one a colonel and another a professor, another director of a bank and railways, or president of a board like Oblinsky. But he knew very well how he must appear to others, was a country gentleman, occupied in breeding cattle, shooting game, and building barns, in other words, a fellow of no ability, who had not turned out well, and who was doing just what, according to the ideas of the world, is done by people fit for nothing else. The mysterious, enchanting Kitty herself could not love such an ugly person 
as he conceived himself to be, and, above all, such an ordinary, in no way striking person. Moreover, his attitude to Kitty in the past, the attitude of a grown-up person to a child, arising from his friendship with his brother, seemed to him yet another obstacle to love. An ugly, good-natured man, as he considered himself, might, he supposed, be liked as a friend, but to be loved with such a love as that with which he loved Kitty, one would need to be a handsome and still more a distinguished man. He had heard that women often did care for ugly and ordinary men, but he did not believe it, for he judged by himself, and he could not himself have loved any but beautiful, mysterious, and exceptional women. But after spending two months alone in the country, he was convinced that this was not one of those passions of which he had experienced in his early youth that this feeling gave him not an instant's rest, that he could not live without deciding the question, would she or would she not be his wife, and that his despair had arisen only from his own imaginings, that he had no sort of proof that he would be rejected. And he had now come to Moscow with a firm determination to make an offer and get married if he were accepted, or he could not conceive what would become of him if he were rejected. Chapter 7 On arriving in Moscow by a morning train, Levin had put up at the house of his elder half-brother, Koznyshev. After changing his clothes, he went down to his brother's study, intending to talk to him at once about the object of his visit, and to ask his advice, but his brother was not alone. With him there was a well-known professor of philosophy, who had come to Harkov expressly to clear up a difference that had arisen between them on a very important philosophical question. The professor was carrying on a hot crusade against materialists. Sergei Koznyshev had been following this crusade with interest, and after reading the professor's last article, he had written him a letter stating his objections. He accused the professor of making too great concessions to the materialists and the professor had promptly appeared to argue the matter out. The point in discussion was the question then in vogue. Is there a line to be drawn between psychological and physiological phenomena in man? And if so, where? Sergei Ivanovich met his brother with the smile of chilly friendliness he always had for everyone and introducing him to the professor, went on with the conversation. A little man in spectacles, with a narrow forehead, tore himself from the discussion for an instant to greet Levin, 
and then went on talking without paying any further attention to him. Levin sat down to wait till the professor should go, but he soon began to get interested in the subject under discussion. Levin had come across the magazine articles about which they were disputing, and had read them, interested in them as a development of the first principles of science, familiar to him as a natural science student at the university. But he had never connected these scientific deductions as to the origin of man as an animal, as to reflex action, biology and sociology, with those questions as to the meaning of life and death to himself, which had of late been more and more often in his mind. As he listened to his brother's arguments with the professor, he noticed that they connected these scientific questions with those spiritual problems, that at times they almost touched on the latter, but every time they were close upon what seemed to him the chief point, they promptly beat a hasty retreat, and plunged again into a sea of subtle distinctions, reservations, quotations, allusions, and appeals to authorities, and it was with difficulty that he understood what they were talking about. I cannot admit it, said Sergei Ivanovich, with his habitual clearness, precision of expression, and elegance of phrase. I cannot in any case agree with Case that my whole conception of the external world has been derived from my perceptions. The most fundamental idea, the idea of existence, has not been received by me through sensation. Indeed, there is no spatial sense organ for the transmission of such an idea. Yes, but they, Wirt and Norst and Pripasov, would answer that your consciousness of existence is derived from the conjunction of all your sensations, that that consciousness of existence is the result of your sensations. Wirt, indeed, says plainly that, assuming there are no sensations, it follows that there is no idea of existence. I maintain the contrary, began Sergei Ivanovich. But here it seemed to Levin that just as they were close upon the real point of the matter, they were again retreating, and had made up his mind to put a question to the professor. According to that, if my senses are annihilated, if my body is dead, I can have no existence of any sort, he queried. The professor, in annoyance, and, as it were, mental suffering at the interruption, looked round at the strange inquirer, more like a bargeman than a philosopher, and turned to his eyes upon Sergei Ivanovich as though to ask, what's one to say to him? But Sergei Ivanovich, who had been talking with far less heat and one-sidedness than the professor, and who had sufficient breadth 
strength of mind to answer the professor, and at the same time to comprehend the simple and natural point of view from which the question was put, smiled and said, That question we have no right to answer as yet. We have not the requisite data, chimed in the professor, and he went back to his argument. No, he said, I would point out the fact that if, as Pripasov directly asserts, perception is based on sensation, then we are bound to distinguish sharply between these two conceptions. Levin listened no more, and simply waited for the professor to go. Chapter 8 When the professor had gone, Sergei Ivanovich turned to his brother. Delighted that you've come. For some time, it is. How's your farming getting on? Levin knew that his elder brother took little interest in farming and only put the question in deference to him, and so he only told him about the sale of his wheat and money matters. Levin had meant to tell his brother of his determination to get married and to ask his advice. He had indeed firmly resolved to do so, but after seeing his brother, listening to his conversation with the professor, hearing afterwards the unconsciously patronising tone in which his brother questioned him about agricultural matters, their mother's property had not been divided, and Levin took charge of both their shares. Levin felt that he could not, for some reason, begin to talk to him of his intentions of marrying. He felt that his brother would not look at it as he would have wished him to. Well, how is your district council going? asked Sergei Ivanovich who was greatly interested in these local boards and attached great importance to them. I really don't know. What? Why? Surely you're a member of the board. No, I'm not a member now. I've resigned, answered Levin, and I no longer attend the meetings. What a pity, commented Sergei Ivanovich, frowning. Levin, in self-defence, began to describe what took place in the meetings in his district. That's how it always is, Sergei Ivanovich interrupted him. We Russians are always like that. Perhaps it's our strong point, really, the faculty of seeing our own shortcomings. But we overdo it. We comfort ourselves with irony which we always have from the tip of our tongues. All I say is, give such rights as our local self-government to any other European people. Why, the Germans or the English would have worked their way to freedom from them, while we simply turn them into ridicule. But how can it be helped? said Levin penitently. It was my last effort and I did try with all my soul. I can't. I'm no good at it. It's not that you're no good at it, said Sergei Ivanovich. 
it is that you don't look at it as you should. Perhaps not, Levin answered dejectedly. Oh, do you know Brother Nikolai's turned up again? This Brother Nikolai was the elder brother of Constantine Levin and half-brother of Sergei Ivanovich, a man utterly ruined, who had dissipated the greater part of his fortune, was living in the strangest and lowest company, and had quarrelled with his brothers. What did you say? Levin cried with horror. How do you know? Prokovy saw him in the street. Here in Moscow, where is he? Do you know? Levin got up from his chair, as though on the point of starting off at once. I'm sorry I told you, said Sergei Ivanovich, shaking his head at his younger brother's excitement. I sent to find out where he is living, and sent him his IOU to Tribbin, which I paid. This is the answer he sent me. And Sergei Ivanovich took a note from under a paperweight and handed it to his brother. Levin read in the queer, familiar handwriting. I humbly beg you to leave me in peace. That's the only favour I ask of my gracious brothers, Nikolai Levin. Levin read it, and without raising his head, stood with the note in his hands opposite Sergei Ivanovich. There was a struggle in his heart between the desire to forget his unhappy brother for the time and the consciousness that it would be base to do so. He obviously wants to offend me, pursued Sergei Ivanovich, but he cannot offend me, and I should have wished with all my heart to assist him, but I know it's impossible to do that. Yes, repeated Levin, I understand and appreciate your attitude to him, but I shall go and see him. If you want to, do. But I shouldn't advise it, said Sergei Ivanovich. As regards myself, I have no fear of doing so. He will not make you quarrel with me. But for your own sake, I should say you would do better not to go. You can't do him any good. Still, do as you please. Very likely I can't do any good. But I feel, especially at such a moment, but that's another thing. I feel I could not be at peace. Well, that I don't understand, said Sergei Ivanovich. One thing I do understand, he added, is a lesson in humility. I have come to look very differently and more charitably on what is called infamous since Brother Nikolai has become what he is. You know what he did. Oh, it's awful, awful, repeated Levin. After obtaining his brother's address from Sergei Ivanovich's footman, Levin was on the point of setting off at once to see him, but on second thought, he decided to put off his visit till the evening. The first thing to do to set his heart at rest was to accomplish what he had come to Moscow for, 
from his brothers, Levin went to Oblinsky's office, and on getting news of the Shabatskys from him, he drove to the place where he had been told he might find Kitty.